This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. My name is Idra Novi, and my new novel is Take What You Need. Idra Novi is a return guest to this podcast. In 2016, we visited about her novel, Ways to Disappear. This time, we spoke about her newest novel titled Take What You Need. Set in the Allegheny Mountains, the novel explores polarization and division through the estranged relationship of a stepmother living in rural America and her stepdaughter living in urban America. It explores the difficulties of family, the accommodation and capitulation to male decision-making, and the beauty and power of art. I recently spoke with Idra Novi about all of this and more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so can you give our listeners a general overview of the book? Do you have an elevator pitch for it? My elevator pitch changes each day. (laughs) (laughs) This is a novel about estrangement and about a woman living in rural America and a woman living in urban America and their inability to connect. I want to talk about the structure of the book because I found it was one of the more interesting aspects as I was reading it because we know from the first chapter from the first line of this book that someone has died and the two women who are estranged who cannot connect they are Leah and Jean and the someone who has died is Jean and we learn about her death from Leah who is her stepdaughter you know but then the next chapter is from Jean's perspective and Jean has already died but she fills in some of the gaps for the reader you know and maybe for Leah who at age 10 lost most contact with Jean so Talk to me about the importance of these two perspectives for the reader. That's a astute observation. Thank you on, on what I was trying to do. I I wanted Jean to be the beating heart of this novel, you know, and it's really her story. And Leah is sort of there to sort of process and sort of think about her blind spots and also think about Jean's blind spots. I think in all of my books, I've been drawn to write about how people write each other off you know, um, how quick we might be to dismiss or mishear other people and what we lose when we mishear each other and when we're quick to write each other off. And I think that's what this book was about in a way that sort of became increasingly complicated with each draft I wrote, you know, sort of becoming more aware of my own blind spots as a writer, as a person. Um, You know, I inhabit two sort of polarized realities because my family lives in the Allegheny Highlands of um, Southwestern Pennsylvania, but I live here in New York. And so I travel back and forth between these two different realities. And this novel became a way to sort of think about, you know, these two places that I really love and I probably don't wholly belong to either anymore. (laughs) As I was saying, you know, there are alternating perspectives that, you know, I found that very interesting, but so is the timeline in that it doesn't follow a direct timeline. It moves back and forth between time a bit. And then there's also the incorporation of memory from both women, which can be unreliable. So I'm, I'm curious about your decisions as a writer. Talk to me about how how you decide when to reveal information. How do you decide that it's the right moment to go back in time to find out what happened in the person's memory and such? How do you work out that timeline as you write? I think 
as a novel, I come to fiction from poetry. And so I think in poetry, you sort of follow sensory experiences. And I really tried to stay in the scene in this novel. I wasn't interested in condemning any of the characters. I was, I just wanted to give each character equal complexity, both, you know, of internal experience of sensory experience and just sort of inhabit them as fully and complexly as I could. And I, I just really tried to say with sensory memory and sensory experiences in the present and how, you know, walking on a squishy path in the woods in the present, you know, you have this bodily memory of having been in those woods as a child, you know, or, you know, for Jean, when she's welding and in this house, she's remembering the same sounds that the same welding equipment made when her father used it when she was a child. And I think that's sort of the interesting thing about sort of being in the middle of life is seeing how often the sensory experience that I'll have, you know, listening to my children and hearing them do something brings to mind something that I did as a child, you know? And, and so when I go back, I, my, my, my older son learned to ride a bike on the same street where I rode a bike and it's a totally quiet street, you know, and no cars come, you know, when I was growing up, the street was so quiet that our dog would sleep in the sunshine in the middle of the road. <laughs> and the only people who came down the road knew the dog. So they would beep. And one of us, I grew up with four of us kids. One of us would come out and get the dog off the road. You know, I loved getting to see my child learn to ride a bike on that same quiet road where I learned to ride a bike. And so I knew that I wanted to write about that memory for Leah and where would it happen? Like, where would she remember biking on those empty roads with Jean as an adult? You know, and I love that it happened that I made this moment where she's seeing Jean's art and she's admiring Jean's art and it gets mixed up with her memory of like biking down roads with Jean as a child. So I, I think that for me was one of the really pleasurable parts of writing this book was how one moment would trigger a memory of some sort of bodily sensory experience, you know, earlier in life. You know, you mentioned Jean's you know, she might be seeing her father weld in the garage. And, and so did Leah, for that matter, when she would go there with Jean. So I'm curious about some of the relationships in the book, because the chapters alternate between Leah and Jean. But I guess I'm thinking mainly about their relationships with men, because Jean's relationship with her father, Jean's relationship with Leah's father, Dave, Jean's relationship with Elliot and maybe a relationship that doesn't seem fraught, uh, Leah and her husband. Talk to me about these relationships with men. It's a fantastic question and one I haven't gotten, so I'm very <laughs> glad you got it. I, I think in you know all my novels, I grew up in, in this rural environment where I was sort of taught in a number of ways to sort of accommodate and sort of capitulate to sort of male decision-making, you know, and um, it's taken me a long time to sort of figure out um, the ways that I don't have to do that as a writer, as a person, as a thinker, um, as a reader, and just a person on the sidewalk, you know, each day. And so I, I something I want to write about, and again, but staying in scenes, you know, I, I don't, I'm not interested in being polemical. I'm not interested in getting on a soapbox, but how does it play out? At what point and, you know, in a woman's life, if she grows up in a place where she's taught to capitulate to men, when and how does she say no? 
you know, what does it look like in the art she makes? What does it look like in her thoughts with herself and her relationships with other women? You know, when when is it possible to sort of have a conversation where you're not sort of anticipating the reactions of the men who make the decisions and have made the decisions around you? And so I think for Jean, her art becomes a place where the box that her father put her in, the box that her husband put her in, she gets to torch those boxes and turn them into something new. So I'm curious about, you know, one of the themes in the book seemed to me anyway, to be fairy tales. Leah and Jean, you know, they were stepmother and stepdaughter. They bonded through Leah's early years through fairy tales. And if I remember correctly, Leah and Jean both referred to the fairy tale Jean was creating through her art. Can you talk to me about the influence of fairy tales on this book? So I think that I learned to reread and to be a deep reader through returning to fairy tales. Something about the concision of fairy tales and something about sort of the darkness in them really drew me in. And I think that what I thought I needed with those fairy tales was the way that they present stepmothers as suspect figures. And women in the history of art have been suspect figures, you know? And I think for Jean and for Leah, that they felt suspect, you know, in, in places where they live because Leah is, you know, is a motherless mother. And so she feels suspect within the world of motherhood. And there's many ways that I thought that playing with those fairy tales felt like it was in sync with sort of Jean's feeling like she doesn't quite belong in art and Leah's feeling that she doesn't quite belong among other mothers, you know, having sort of no mother to sort of reverberate against her own instincts as well. So for both of them, I, it, it felt like a good fit for this novel. And the other thing is, is that, you know, this novel is about polarization and about estrangement. And I think dissolving cultural divides right now, even in a really small way between two characters and one novel, that feels like a fairy tale. <laughs> And she's so painfully divided. And so to even attempt to write a novel about dissolving the cultural divides, even just between Leah and Elliot for five minutes in a living room, felt like a fairy tale. I want to get back to the art now because throughout the book, Jean was creating these towers. They first began as boxes and then evolved into towers, and she called them manglements. The description of the of the work of the pieces she was working on, it was quite vivid. And I certainly have an image of these sculptures in my head. In the acknowledgments, you thanked some folks for helping you understand welding and metal arts. But I'm curious about the inspiration behind these pieces. Have you seen works like this? I made them. I have made boxes. They're not probably as fantastical or as tall or as elaborate, but I think I was able to envision Jean's art and understand the physical challenges of making her sculptures because I got to try making sort of a smaller scale version myself at the Center for Metal Arts in, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. It's like in the former steel mill and they have the old forge and they invite people to come and sort of do metalwork. And so I got to go um, while, you know, I was in town visiting family and um, I go back every summer. And so I, I, I actually picked up scraps of metal from the floor and um, Dan Neville, who's a metal artist at the center, helped me figure out how to tack weld and, you know, use a TIG torch and other equipment that they have there and laser cutter and actually make manglements. So I did that. And I also worked with Julia Murray, who's a metal artist here in New York, who in fact is one of, at one point, the only woman in the welding union that fixes the bridges of New York. And I work with her too. Um, and I work with an artist in my town. So I basically made manglements 
with every metal artist I could sort of convince to spend a little time with me. And everyone I work with had different techniques and went about making a box differently. And I found that fascinating. And they were interested in the advice I'd gotten from each other. You know, they're like, is that what they told you to do first? And so <laughs> I just, I got to sort of enter the mind, you know, and I think something I really love in a novel is sort of entering that novice mindset of learning about something new, you know, and those who knew my last novel, I wrote about a playwright. And so I worked at NYU, the Stella Adler studio for, for acting. And I got to perform the plays I wrote in the novel with actors. And this time I got to make up these minglements and then actually create them with actual metal artists. So that's something that I, I think sort of makes my synapses start firing is to sort of be somebody learning something new. So even though I've been writing, I've like what, 10 books now of translation of poetry and fiction, but with each one, I, I want to sort of, I want to learn something new. So when will this art be on display? When's your opening? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have those boxes carefully hidden in my bookshelf. <laughs> Okay, I also want to talk about the power of art, you know, for the beholder, but also for the artist. How did this help Jean? You know, I start the novel with a quote from Louise Bourgeois, which says, you know, when you can't accept the past, you sculpt it. And I found that quote early on, and it became sort of a guiding impulse for the novel, which is what Jean can't change about what happened in losing her connection with Leah, her daughter that she raised her sort of frustrations and disappointments with the streets where she lives and, you know, all these people who have left. And, you know, a lot of them, like her friend who lived across the street, went and lived with her grown children in another place, but she stayed and she wants to not see the place around her as just the past, you know? And I think a lot of books often present Appalachia as just a study of the past. And I wanted to write about the present and I wanted to write about somebody in Appalachia who, and in just rural America in general, who says, no, I'm here in the present and I'm making something new and I'm taking these post-industrial discards and I'm making something vital and of the moment that we're in. She refuses to see the place around her as the past and her sculptures become a way to insist on the present and being alive now. We do not know exactly how Jean died, but there were so many instances of, of possible foreshadowing, you know, like if she lets Elia in, he can kill her or she could fall from this ladder, but she would be pleased to die this way because she was making art. Do you know how she died? Um, huh. <laughs> you know, in Ways to Disappear, my first novel, which I was so lucky to talk about with you, I also left it open. Um, you know, the, the, the author in Ways to Disappear, I've written about artists, you know, in, in, in all three books of women artists and women artists who've been sort of written off and, and sort of, you know, maybe after a certain age, I think many women and their art are sort of, you know, relegated to the sidelines and maybe their lives have been relegated and their deaths have been too. And so leaving their deaths open-ended to me seems like leaving the future of their work open-ended too. And that they don't die because Jean's work will live on where I don't want to give it away. Her work finds, you know, a place possibly. And um, in the same way, I think I did with Ways to Disappear. So I think sort of like, I don't like neat resolutions. They don't feel emotionally true. I know some readers crave that, but that to me feels more like entertainment. And I don't want to just entertain. I want to ask questions in meaningful ways in, in a work of fiction. And so for me, I think maybe leaving some questions in there is a way for the reader to continue to imagine Jean's work in their own minds. You didn't mention any high profile individuals by name, but the time, place, and sentiments all alluded, you know, they were all alluded to and were certainly understood. 
Talk to me about writing about a country in turmoil. Because of your dual perspectives, you were able to explore not opposing views exactly, but differing views. Yes. Thank you for teasing out that that difference, because I think it's an important one. I was actually intending to write a nonfiction book. In 2015 and 2016, I started interviewing a lot of people in my hometown. You know, I, I sort of went back because I was just really upset about, you know, as many of us were and in shock of sort of what was happening in the country. So, you know, I went with my brother back to bars and met up with people I'd gone to high school with I hadn't seen in years. I met up with family, friends. And when I was talking to them, it kept coming up these painful estrangements that had happened with differing views of their children, their siblings, their neighbors, you know, people were feeling like there was wedges coming between them and people that they had loved and that the divides that were sort of growing in the country were really impacting their ability to talk to people. And, and, and I thought that that was happening to me with one of my siblings. Um, and we fell out of touch for a number of years and it was pretty painful. And so I wanted to explore that. I couldn't find any books about that. And as many writers do, I think you end up writing the book you need and that you can't find. And I just really wanted to think about what is the psychic toll of being estranged from someone you love because you just have lost the ability to talk about things that are the things that you're scared about and the things that are sort of most pressing on your mind each day. You know, you set this in the Allegheny Mountains because that's what you know, um, but you're talking rural attitudes, poverty, violence, biases against mixed race. This could have been set anywhere in the country, couldn't have it? I, I think so. And, 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 you know, Seblik is a fictional town. It's an invented town, you know, set in the region where my family's been living for, you know, over a hundred years. So I know that area well, but I think I was thinking a lot, you know, like I, I read a lot of Claire Keegan's books, which are set in Ireland, you know, and she also, I think has like a magical ability to sort of restrain and stay in the scene and just let the characters' actions and their interactions speak for themselves. And so I was just thinking about what happens when you have a strong sense of place and people have a strong connection to that place. And how does that sort of limit their ability to express themselves to people who live in a very, very different place in the country? I want to talk about the title for a moment. I saw three nods to it in the book. Can you explain its meaning and maybe the process of choosing a title? Why is it titled Take What You Need? It actually comes from a line in the Bible referring to honey and how you shouldn't take more honey than you need. And if you take more than you need, you'll probably vomit. And so <laughs> I just think it's like a an interesting biblical warning, right? That if you take more than, than is good for you and you don't leave for others, it will make you sick. You know, and we're in this time sort of weird excesses and, but also there's quiet ways that you can sort of slurp all the honey inside your house. And nobody will ever know, but then you still feel it inside yourself, you know, that you overdid it. And so I thought that that was important because this is a novel about sharing water. It's about sharing resources. It's about, you know, sharing art. There's a lot of things about taking and needing and a lot of those imbalances, which are quiet ones, you know, they sort of all take place in this house. And so, you know, there's Elliot and, you know, he's living next door. And in some depictions, you might think, you know, that he would be the one who would have the power in the relationship, which is what Jean assumes, you know, because he's a man and because he's strong and she's like an older woman living on her own, but he's the one who doesn't have water. He's the one, you know, who doesn't have a place to shower. He's the one who doesn't have a house. And so anyone can be on the losing end of a power imbalance, depending on the situation that 
they're in. And so I wanted to write about like who's taking and who's needing and how sometimes we assume how that equation works out and we can be wrong. The book is Take What You Need. Idra Novi, thank you so much for joining us again today. You had fantastic questions. This was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Idra Novi, author of the book, Take What You Need, which was published by Viking. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>